I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. On this episode of Newt's World, I wanted to share with you one of the most important documents in the history of the United States because it sets the stage for our democracy to continue. It was written by President George Washington as his farewell address in 1796. He never actually gave it as a public speech, but it was published in Philadelphia's American Daily Advertiser on September 19, 1796. Back then, Philadelphia was the interim capital as we moved ultimately towards Washington, D.C., Washington had decided not to seek re-election. He'd been elected twice. He frankly was tired, but he also knew that it was very important to establish a limitation on power. And by stepping down from power, he provided a standard of two terms as a limit that would literally go on all the way until Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 1940s. And the country decided having presidents elected more than two terms was such a bad idea that we then passed the 22nd Amendment to the Constitution to go back to Washington's precedent. So I thought, as we celebrate President's Day, which is in fact Washington's birthday, I wanted to both honor his legacy, but also learn from his legacy, because it was an amazingly smart farewell address. He'd first started working on it late in his first term when he thought he would not run for re-election. And James Madison helped him with an early draft. And then he was talked into running for re-election by both Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, who were competitors, but who both agreed that Washington was so central to the survival of the country that he had to run. Uh, They talked him into running for a second term. And late in his second term, he turned to Alexander Hamilton and asked Hamilton to help improve the original James Madison draft. And in the end, Washington himself went through the whole thing. And it really tells you a lot about kind of the basic principles 
of a Republican government, the principles of freedom that Washington had learned over a very long time. Remember, he was a legislator in the Virginia legislature before we became a country. He had been a soldier and actually had played a key role in starting the Seven Years' War, or what we called in America the French and Indian War. He had been part of the original Continental Congress and then had been selected to go to Boston because they thought having a Virginian head up the new American army was essential to unify the country. He then was at war for eight solid years, went on to go back home, rested a little bit, but got drawn back in because it was clear that the Articles of Confederation were too weak and that the states were floundering. And so he became the president of the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. And after that, he was unanimously elected as president twice. So this document represents a lifetime of wisdom, a lifetime of experience, a lifetime of thinking about government, thinking about war, and thinking about national survival. And Washington encourages people to understand that he was stepping down not because he wasn't concerned, but because he really thought it was responsible to have a limitation. This is, by the way, the same thing he had done at the end of the war when the British had finally granted us our independence. Washington goes to the Continental Congress, which at that time was meeting in Maryland and in Annapolis. You can actually see this if you go to the state capitol. There is a room set aside where they have recreated with life-size statues. Washington showing up to tender his sword and return it and say, okay, I did my job. We won the war. I'm going home. It was the tradition which that generation understood called Cincinnatus. There was a Roman farmer named Cincinnatus who had to take up a sword, go and fight, win a war, and then went back home. And he was always seen as the symbol of Republican virtue. The Americans had been very worried because in the 100 years earlier during the English Civil War, Cromwell created a genuine dictatorship. And that dictatorship had imprinted itself on the memory of people, and they were very frightened that Washington might attempt to become a Cromwell, to become a dictator, because he clearly was the most powerful and most popular person in the colonies. So this act of deliberately returning his sword to the Congress, saying, I've done my job, I'm now going back home to Mount Vernon, because he really loved Mount Vernon, he wanted to go back to being a gentleman farmer. When he was told about it, King George III said, if this is really true, if he has given up this power, then he will be the greatest man of the century because this was so unusual. And now he's called back out of retirement. He goes back to public service. And now he's at the end of that period. And he says that he owed everything to the American people. And that, as he said, in looking forward to the moment which is intended to terminate the career of my political life, my feelings do not permit me to suspend the deep acknowledgement of that debt of gratitude, which I owe to my beloved country, for the many honors it has conferred upon me, still more for the steadfast confidence with which it has supported me, and for the opportunities I've thence enjoyed of manifesting my inviolable attachment by services faithful and persevering, though in usefulness unequal to my zeal. If benefits have resulted to our country from these services, let it always be remembered to your praise and as an instructive example in our annals that under circumstances 
in which the passions agitated in every direction were liable to mislead, amidst appearances sometimes dubious, vicissitudes of fortune often discouraging, in situations in which not infrequently want of success has countenanced the spirit of criticism. The constancy of your support was the essential prop of the efforts and a guarantee of the plans by which they were affected. Profoundly penetrated with this idea, I shall carry it with me to my grave as a strong incitement to unceasing vows that heaven may continue to you the choicest tokens of its beneficence, that your union and brotherly affection may be perpetual, that the free constitution, which is the work of your hands, may be sacredly maintained, that its administration in every department may be stamped with wisdom and virtue, that in fine, the happiness of the people of these states, under the auspices of liberty, may be made complete by so careful a preservation and so prudent a use of this blessing as will acquire to them the glory of recommending it to the applause, the affection, and adoption of every nation which is yet a stranger to it. In other words, Washington's saying to us that in the end, he was sustained by popular support. In the end, they were able to come together because it was a free constitution maintained by free people. Now think about this. He spent eight years at war. Valley Forge was terrible. He had opponents in the Congress trying to get him fired. He had a lack of support. It would have been easy to have broken. And yet he persevered because he believed the American people believed in the cause of freedom, and he was therefore their instrument in pursuing this moral cause. Now, he goes on to say that he really has some significant deep ideas that he wants to share with them. As he puts it, quote, the disinterested warnings of a parting friend who can possibly have no personal motive to bias his counsel. So think about it. Here he is at the end of his long career saying, look, I want to share with you what I really believe because as my final contribution to the country, that I really want you to understand what has made America unique and what we have to do to continue America. He goes on to say, quote, interwoven as is the love of liberty with every ligament of your hearts, no recommendation of mine is necessary to fortify or confirm the attachment, close quote. Now, he's really saying something profound here. What he believed made Americans unique was that they loved liberty, not in a shallow way, but with every ligament of their hearts. And that this was the base of Washington's belief in America. It's the base of Washington's belief in freedom. He goes on to say, because remember, at the time, the concept of a United States of America was a unique thing. The 13 colonies, having become 13 states, had voluntarily, through referendums and through state legislatures, agreed to join together in this new constitution. And it was still a very fragile document. It had only been in power for eight years. It could easily disappear. So a real part of Washington's farewell message is to remind people of keeping the United States united. He goes on to say, quote, the unity of government, which constitutes you one people, is also now dear to you. It is justly so 
for it is a main pillar in the edifice of your real independence, the support of your tranquility at home, your peace abroad, of your safety, of your prosperity, of that very liberty which you so highly prize. But, as it is easy to foresee that from different causes and from different quarters, much pains will be taken, many artifices employed to weaken in your minds the conviction of this truth, as this is the point in your political fortress against which the batteries of internal and external enemies will be most constantly and actively, though often covertly and insidiously directed, it is of infinite moment that you should properly estimate the immense value of your national union to your collective and individual happiness, that you should cherish cordial, habitual, and immovable attachment to it, accustoming yourselves to think and speak of it as of the palladium of your political safety and prosperity, watching for its preservation with jealous anxiety, discountenancing whatever may suggest even a suspicion that it can in any event be abandoned, and indignantly frowning upon the first dawning of every attempt to alienate any portion of our country from the rest, or to enfeeble the sacred ties which now link together the various parts. Close quote. Now, those sacred ties and that paragraph, I think, is about as clear a repudiation of wokeism as you're ever going to see. It's about as clear a repudiation of the anti-American courses on our college campuses. It's about as clear a repudiation of those who would refuse to stand for the national anthem, refuse to salute the flag, refuse to recognize that patriotism matters. Washington explains why this is important. He says, quote, For this you have every inducement of sympathy and interest. Citizens by birth or choice of a common country, that country has a right to concentrate your affections. The name of American, which belongs to you in your national capacity, must always exalt the just pride of patriotism more than any appellation derived from local discriminations. With slight shades of difference, you have the same religion, manners, habits, and political principles. You have in a common cause fought and triumphed together. The independence and liberty you possess are the work of joint councils and joint efforts of common dangers, sufferings, and successes. Now think about what he's saying here. But first of all, I would point out to those of our friends who don't understand the importance of legal immigration. Washington talks about citizens by birth or choice of a common country. He then says, what are we? Well, we're all Americans. We're not hyphenated Americans. We're not partial Americans. We're all Americans. And that's why he talks about the name of American which he says must always exalt the just pride of patriotism. And again, I would suggest this is a complete repudiation of wokeism in all of its forms. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment... Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey guys. 
guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. He also says that there are powerful reasons for us working together. And he goes to a section talking about how the North relates to the South, the South relates to the North, the East relates to the West. And it's easy for us to forget, but in his generation, he is communicating something really central to the future of America. And that is that we are all bound together, we are all stronger together, and that we have every interest in being able to maintain the country as a country. So I think that it's very important to recognize that Washington is, in the best sense of the word, a nationalist, that he believes that it's very important for us to bring ourselves together to see each other as fellow Americans. And he also argues that we have to be careful because otherwise we're going to have foreign countries try to manipulate us, to exploit us, maybe even to attack us. And I think his point is that the Union of the United States is a strength against foreign involvement. And it's a strength against those who would come and take us over. Now, he talks about this being, quote, a persuasive language to every reflecting and virtuous mind to exhibit the continuance of the Union as a primary object of patriotic desire. Now, think about this and consider all of the various current anti-American sniping and the cynicism and the efforts to destroy statues, to refuse to teach history. He's saying clearly, what you have to have is a persuasive language that exhibits the continuance of the Union as a primary object of patriotic desire. And in that context, he says... Quote, is there a doubt whether a common government can embrace so large a sphere? Let experience solve it. To listen to mere speculation in such a case were criminal. I think that's how he would regard, by the way, most of wokeism, that it is in effect criminal, not in the legalistic sense, but in the sense that it is a fundamental assault on the very patriotism which binds us together. He goes on to say, quote, we're authorized to hope that a proper organization of the whole, with the auxiliary agency of governments for the respective subdivisions, will afford a happy issue to the experiment, close quote. Remember, this really was an experiment. Washington goes on to call it, quote, it is well worth a fair and full experiment. And what is he saying? Never has there been an effort to have a continent-wide free country. 
the occasional examples of some limited level of freedom. Iceland, which had a self-governing model. Venice, which had a self-governing model, although it was an oligarchy, not a pure democracy. Athens, you'd have to go all the way back to Rome to see any effort to create a republic on a scale. And what he is suggesting is that this is our moment, that this is truly an experiment. And it is up to us who are prepared to deal with that. In fact, he's very strong about people who undermine it. He says, quote, there will always be reason to distrust the patriotism of those who in any quarter may endeavor to weaken its bands. Now, can you imagine if we quoted Washington to people who are woke? Now, he's very concerned about breaking into the kind of factions that will simply be hostile and that will simply decide that they would rather devour each other than find a way to solve the country. He says, quote, to the efficacy and permanency of your union, a government for the whole is indispensable. No alliances, however strict between the parts, can be an adequate substitute. They must inevitably experience the infractions and interruptions which all alliances in all times have experienced. Sensible of this momentous of truth, you have improved upon your first essay by the adoption of a constitution of government better calculated than your former for an intimate union and for the efficacious management of your common concerns. Now, what does he say? Remember, when he says the first essay, he's really talking about the Articles of Confederation, which were the articles adopted by the colonies in their rebellion against Great Britain. And they had turned out to be too weak, to lack authority, and to be unable to solve problems. And so the Constitution is actually the second great experiment. The first one, literally in Washington's lifetime, had failed. And so he realized that the Constitution could fail also. In many ways, his farewell dress in part is designed to prop up, reinforce, and strengthen the Constitution and get people to understand how important it is. He goes on to say, quote, This government, the offspring of our own choice, uninfluenced and unawed, adopted upon full investigation and mature deliberation, completely free in its principles, in the distribution of its powers, uniting security with energy and containing within itself a provision for its own amendment, has a just claim to your confidence and your support. Respect for its authority, compliance with its laws, acquiescence in its measures are duties enjoined by the fundamental maxims of true liberty. Now, what he's saying here is that we now have a stable system. And when he says that it was adopted upon full investigation and mature deliberation, he is in part saying that the Federalist Papers, which were the greatest political documents ever written as a brochure, basically it's a thick brochure, and the Federalist Papers had laid out the concept of the Constitution, how it would work, why it was the right structure, and that the country had adopted the Constitution freely. Now, he goes on to say, respect for its authority, compliance with its laws, acquiescence in its measures are duties enjoined by the fundamental maxims of true liberty. In other words, you can say anything you want prior to adopting a law, but then when the law is passed, you have an obligation to obey it. That's what being a citizen is. And he goes on to say, the basis of our political systems is the right of the people to make and alter their constitutions of government. But the constitution which at any time exists till changed by an explicit and authentic act of the whole people 
is sacredly obligatory upon all. The very idea of the power and the right of the people to establish government presupposes the duty of every individual to obey the established government. That, by the way, I think comes in two different directions. First of all, if you read that, you understand Lincoln and his position on secession. The fact is, as Washington said, the Constitution, which at any time exists till changed by an explicit and authentic act of the whole people, is sacredly obligatory upon all. You read that and you understand almost everything about Lincoln's position that he had sworn an oath to protect the Constitution. And as he put it, those who wanted to secede did not have such an oath, but he did, and he would protect it. But in addition, he's suggesting that once you've adopted the rules, then you have to obey the rules until you change them, and you're free to change them. But that's a process. This, by the way, I think would have been his absolute condemnation of the riots of the summer of 2020 and his condemnation of the riot which occurred at the Capitol on January 6th because they were violations. Washington was a man who believed in order. He had fought wars. He fought the French and Indian War. He fought against the British for eight years. But those were orderly, structured processes. He deeply opposed the mob. He deeply opposed the kind of violence which is all too common. And he would deeply have opposed the acceptance of criminality, which has become part of recent times. He goes on to say, quote, all obstructions to the execution of the laws. And after all, let me say, what is a mob burning down a town? Anything but an obstruction to the execution of the laws. For that matter, what is a group of people trying to occupy the Capitol, except an obstruction to the execution of the laws? So let me go on. This is Washington. Quote, all obstructions to the execution of the laws, all combinations and associations under whatever plausible character with the real design to direct, control, counteract, or all the regular deliberation and action of the constituted authorities are destructive to this fundamental principle and of fatal tendency. They serve to organize faction, to give it an artificial and extraordinary force, to put in the place of the delegated will of the nation, the will of a party often a small but artful and enterprising minority of the community, and according to the alternate triumphs of different parties, to make the public administration the mirror of the ill-concerted and incongruous projects of faction, rather than the organ of consistent and wholesome plans digested by common councils and modified by mutual interest. Now let me take that apart for a second. He's drawing a sharp distinction here between the mirror of the ill-concerted and incongruous projects of faction. Certainly what he would have thought of in the riots of the summer of 2020, certainly what he would have thought of on January the 6th. Instead, what did he call for? He calls for what the true legislative process is, the organ of consistent and wholesome plans digested by common councils and modified by mutual interest. This is the essence of the legislative process at its very best. And he goes on to repudiate the idea that there are times that you should be allowed to riot because it's so important. He says, combinations or associations of the above description may now and then answer popular ends. They are likely in the course of time and things to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. Now, that is as good a paragraph describing what happened in Russia with Lenin, 
describing what happened in China with Mao Zedong, describing what happened in Germany with Hitler, and Italy with Mussolini. The fact is, once you break down the rules, once you allow the mob to dominate, once you allow force to prevail over reason, you then, as he put it, destroy the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion, because then you no longer have a chance to have regular orderly government. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. He goes on to say, toward the preservation of your government and the permanency of your present happy state, it is requisite not only that you steadily discountenance irregular oppositions to its acknowledged authority, but also that you resist with care the spirit of innovation upon its principles, however specious the pretext. Now, what he's saying here is that the system was founded by being carefully thought through. It has a clear structure, and that people who want to innovate without going through the process of amendment are in fact changing. It's essentially a preemptive exclusion of the modern Supreme Court model where for a long stretch of at least 60 years, the Supreme Court members thought they could rewrite the Constitution cheerfully as a miniature constitutional convention, and any five justices became a constitutional convention. And Washington's saying that's explicitly wrong. That, in fact, what you have to do is ensure that the law is enforced and that the structure is there. He goes on to say, liberty itself will find in such a government with powers properly distributed and adjusted its surest guardian. It is indeed little else than a name where the government is too feeble to withstand the enterprises of faction, to confine each member of the society within the limits prescribed by the law, and to maintain all the secure and tranquil enjoyments of the rights of person and property. So 
He really wants a system where you don't have the teachers' union dominating. You don't have interest groups dominating. You don't have lobbyists dominating. And you don't have mobs dominating. And I think it's very important to understand that this was the wisdom of somebody who had spent a lifetime studying human nature, managing and leading people, and achieving things that were truly historically remarkable. And he says, look, inevitably they're going to have these challenges. He goes to say, quote, this spirit, unfortunately, is inseparable from our nature, having its root in the strongest passions of the human mind. It exists under different shapes in all governments, more or less stifled, controlled, or repressed, but in those of the popular form. It is seen in its greatest rankness and is truly their worst enemy. So it's this spirit of faction, this spirit of domination, this spirit of breaking the rule, which is truly the worst enemy of freedom and liberty. He goes on to say, quote, The alternate domination of one faction over another, sharpened by the spirit of revenge, natural to party dissension, which in different ages and countries has perpetrated the most horrid enormities, is itself a frightful despotism. But this leads at length to a more formal and permanent despotism. The disorders and miseries which result gradually incline the minds of men to seek security and repose in the absolute power of an individual. And sooner or later, the chief of some prevailing faction, more able or more fortunate than his competitors, turns this dispossession to the purposes of his own elevation on the ruins of public liberty. Now, think about that. Here he has in a paragraph, written concurrently with the French Revolution's turn into a despotic totalitarian system that was using the guillotine to kill most of the aristocrats and many religious people. Here he has pulled together an analysis which will apply directly to Russia, Germany, Italy, China, Spain under Franco, which today would apply to Venezuela, Cuba, Iran, North Korea. It's an astonishing example that Washington is timeless, that what he had learned is true for all of history, and that his wisdom is as important and relevant today as it would have been in 1796. He goes on to say, quote, The common and continual mischiefs of the spirit of party are sufficient to make it the interest and duty of a wise people to discourage and restrain it. It serves always to distract the public councils and enfeeble the public administration. It agitates the community with ill-founded jealousies and false alarms, kindles the animosity of one part against another, foments occasionally riot and insurrection. It opens the door to foreign influence and corruption, which find a facilitated access to the government itself through the channels of party passion. Thus, the policy and the will of one country are subjected to the policy and will of another. Now, could you find a more perfect statement? Remember, this guy is writing. Washington's writing in 1796. Would you like to look at the Chinese donations to the University of Pennsylvania, University of Delaware? Would you like to look at the efforts by a variety of countries to penetrate the United States? Would you like to look at the degree to which riot and insurrection have been fomented? Washington could be writing this today. That's how timeless this is. Quote, it is important, likewise, that the habits of thinking in a free country should inspire caution in those entrusted with his administration to confine themselves within their respective constitutional spheres, avoiding in the exercise of the powers of one department to encroach upon another. The spirit of encroachment 
tends to consolidate the powers of all the departments in one, and thus to create whatever the form of government, a real despotism. A just estimate of that love of power and proneness to abuse it, which predominates in the human heart, is sufficient to satisfy us of the truth of this position. Close quote. What Washington is saying is that the tendency towards acquiring power, what Lord Acton would describe when he said, power tends to corrupt, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Notice that with absolute power, he drops tens and says it just corrupts absolutely. Well, a hundred years earlier, Washington's writing the same thing, and he's warning us. If you're not careful, people who love power, manipulate the system, accumulate power, inevitably drift towards a situation that is enormously dangerous. And that is why you always have to be careful about keeping the system working within the constitutional limits. I think that it's very, very important to recognize that Washington is constantly trying to remind us in this document that at the heart of freedom has to be self-control, that self-government requires, in a sense, governing self. He says, quote, it is substantially true that virtue or morality is a necessary spring of popular government. The rule indeed extends with more or less force to every species of free government. Who that is a sincere friend to it can look with indifference upon attempts to shake the foundation of the fabric. Promote then, as an object of primary importance, institutions for the general diffusion of knowledge in proportion as the structure of a government gives force to public opinion. It is essential that public opinion should be enlightened. Now, you couldn't say it better. The very collapse of our school system, the unwillingness of the modern generation of college professors to teach accurate history, the desire of the media to be anti-American and to mock America and undermine America, all those are precisely what Washington was warning us about back in 1796. He goes on to say that you should be very careful. Remember, he had worked in a government which had virtually no money, which was deeply in debt, fought the entire Revolutionary War on a shoestring, and so he understood the importance of having a balanced budget, the importance of being careful about public credit. And he says, quote, as a very important source of strength and security, cherish public credit. One method of preserving it is to use it as sparingly as possible, avoiding occasions of expense by cultivating peace. Remember also that timely disbursements to prepare for danger frequently prevent much greater disbursements to repel it, avoiding likewise the accumulation of debt, not only by shunning occasions of expense, but by vigorous exertions in time of peace to discharge the debts which unavoidable wars have occasioned, not ungenerously throwing upon prosperity the burden which we ourselves ought to bear. The execution of these maxims belongs to your representatives, but it is necessary that public opinion should cooperate. To facilitate them the performance of their duties, it is essential that you should practically bear in mind that toward the payment of debts there must be revenue, that to have revenue there must be taxes, that no taxes can be devised which are not more or less inconvenient and unpleasant. The three intrinsic embarrassment inseparable from the selection of the proper objects, which is always a choice of difficulties, ought to be a decisive motive for a candid construction of the conduct of the government in making it and for a spirit of acquiescence in the measures for obtaining revenue, which the public exigencies may at any time dictate. Now, what's he saying? He's saying, first of all, if you're going to run up spending, you're going to have to pay for it. The way you pay for it is called taxes. Taxes are really unpleasant. On the other hand, 
What you don't want to do is run up huge amounts of debt. And Washington is very clear about this. He really believes in getting to a balanced budget in part because he has seen what happened in the United States. He's seen how close we came to bankruptcy. He has seen what the absence of money meant. And therefore, he believes that a country which has got a balanced budget, has paid down its debt, has the capacity to do far greater things, to be safer and freer than it would otherwise be. So I think that it's actually worth your reading the entire document. I've only given you key segments of it. He is a remarkable person who had lived a remarkable life and who literally is the father of our country. He is the person upon whom all the rest of America stands. And he is the person that I think we have to look to to personify the spirit of a republic, to personify the spirit of a self-governing system. He is truly, I think, somebody worthy of study. And frankly, if our schools taught more about Washington and less about junk, we would be a lot healthier country and we would be, in fact, dramatically better off, I think. So I hope you will take some encouragement from the wisdom of George Washington, the recognition of how timeless his ideas were, and the possibility that we as a country can in fact be worthy of his legacy. And I want to encourage you, if you're planning a visit to the Washington, D.C. area, do plan a visit to Mount Vernon, George Washington's home. It's a wonderful place. You'll get a real sense of what Washington was like as a man, a leader, and a president. You can find out more about Mount Vernon at mountvernon.org. Thank you for listening. You can view Washington's farewell address on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howe, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening.